נהרג מזמן אחד, איך נראו לך התוצאות? בסדר גמור. גם כמה אל תרשות, אבל בסך הכל בסדר גמור. מפחמן, האם נראה לכם בסך הכל פגיעות טובות? חיובי, המטרה כנראה הושמדה גם תוכנה. Welcome back to Balagan, I'm Kobe Cohen. If it wasn't for Israel, the world would have faced a nuclear Iraq. But at 16.00 of Sunday, June 7th of 1981, a squadron of eight F-16As, joined by three pairs of F-15As to provide fighter support, took off from Etzion base near Elat in the southern border of Israel. On their way east, traveling a total distance of 2,200 kilometers round trip, estimated 1,400 miles. Three hours later, all planes were back safe and the mission was accomplished. The nuclear reactor named Osirak was destroyed. The operation surprised the world. Israel was condemned by the international community, but in the long run was embraced for this bold move. Saddam Hussein's Iraq was a threat to the area and to the world's stability. Colonel Zevi Kraz, who led the attack, is here to share with us about the attack the days prior and the days after. Kraz served as a squadron commander and was decorated with the Chief of Staff Citation, the Ramatkal Award, for his leadership leading the operation. I'm really proud to have you here. Welcome, Zevi, to our show. Thank you, Kobe. The Iranians were America's friends and Israel's friends during the 60s, and they got uh, phantoms and F-14s from the States. And I remember some of my friends who uh, flew phantoms, like me, they flew the F-4 simulator in Tehran, as crazy as it may sound now. I didn't do it because I started uh, flying the F-4 phantom only in 1971. Uh, Anyway, Saddam Hussein thought he had the chance to uh, beat his uh, enemies, Iranians, since uh, as a result of the, that coup in Iran, the Islamic coup, the whole uh, upper part of the Iranian forces was pushed away because they were loyal to the Shah, to the old the regime. Right. The Iranian army in the short range was weaker, naturally. So Saddam Hussein... tried to take advantage of that and started the war against Iran. But at the same time, he tried and succeeded in getting a nuclear reactor from France. And that was an opportunity for us, although at that time we didn't know it. 1979, the Americans were looking for someone else to purchase the Iranian F-16s instead of the Iranians. So Israel uh, jumped on this opportunity That's how we got the F-16s earlier, spring of 1980, and we were capable of flying to uh, Baghdad and back since the range of the F-16 was larger than that of the F-4 and the A-4, Skyhawk and Phantom. You must remember that at that time, we were equipped only with air fueling for A-4 Skyhawk and for F-4 Phantom, and we did not have air fueling for F-15s and F-16s. Since that kind of fueling is considered strategic, it belongs to the Strategic Air Command SAC, and we never got it, even today. So we had to develop air-to-air fueling for F-15 and F-16 in Israel, in our industry. But in 1980-81, it was not ready yet. It was ready only in 82. 
but we could not wait until 82, because our intelligence told us that in 82, the reactor in Bag near Baghdad, that French reactor, is going to be active. And you don't want to bomb an active hot reactor, because you may cause nuclear reaction, radioactive and reaction. Radiation, yes. And to do it earlier without a refueling. We were a group of four pilots. I was the commanding officer of the first group of pilots who learned to fly the F-16 in Utah, Hill Air Force Base, in Utah, in the summer of 1980. Please remember that at that time, the F-16 was a revolution not only for us, but also for the U.S. and also for Europe. It was the first fighter jet flown by computer fly-by-wire, as it's called. Performance of that fly-by-wire fighter was superb, including the range. So we flew back to Israel, and uh, immediately the commanding officer of the Air Force, General Ivry, who had gave me my flying wings 13 years earlier, the end of 67, a few months after the Six-Day War, he called me and said, well, please check if it's possible, fly to Baghdad and back, and destroy that reactor. And I had to consult with my navigations officer, Captain Ilan Ramon. He was the one in charge of drawing the maps and doing all that fuel calculations and rain calculations. And his reply was almost possible. Well, we can fly to Baghdad, but flying back, well, without air fueling, that's a problem. We were short a few hundred pounds of fuel. So we had to do some tricks and we trained uh, more than half a year to be to these almost, and we succeeded. We took off from another base, not from our base in the north, but from another base near Eilat, the south of the country, and we uh, stayed connected to the fueling tanks until takeoff, and we jettisoned the wing tanks at the moment they were empty in the presence of the bombs. And this is something that you are not supposed to do. The book... The F-16 book at that time, in 1980, said you are not supposed to do it because F-16 is small and the bombs are very, very close to the external tanks. And if you uh, jettison the tanks before with the bombs so close, it's very dangerous. But we didn't have any other solution, so we had to do it. Although the book said it's forbidden you know, to get rid of the drag for something like half an hour after takeoff. And that's how we erased that uh, almost... Of Ilan Ramon. You may remember that Ilan Ramon was later our first astronaut and we lost him in space. He came back from Baghdad, but... He didn't come back with the Colombia. Yeah, he didn't come back from space. Anyway, so uh, he was my number eight, Ilan Ramon, although he was young captain and uh, he didn't have any experience. You know, the first time he released bomb in enemy territory was in Baghdad. As crazy as it may sound, that's what it was. And I had more experienced pilot. They preferred him. And, you know, he was the only pilot in the squadron. Know what we are training for, you know, for about half a year. The other pilots didn't know what are these strange flights. It was 90 that minutes secret. Long, 90 minutes, 40,000 feet. What is this? Are we going to fly south, east, west, north? And Ilan Ramon was the only one in the squadron except me who knew that we are training for uh, Baghdad. Spring of 1981, we were ready and we deployed to that base near Eilat, Sion. And uh, we did it in Sunday because 
we knew there were French technicians in Baghdad in the nuclear reactor, and we didn't want to help them, to kill them. And we thought that on Sunday they will not be there, but one French technician got killed, and as far as I know, Israel compensated his family as much as you can pay a family for the loss of the son. And our was also a very uh, special argument. They wanted us, the planning team in Tel Aviv, wanted us to do the bombing after sunset, before dark. We call it last light. And they wanted us to fly back at 40,000 feet in darkness, so it will, it will be so that it will be harder for the Iraqis to intercept us. But I didn't want to do it after sunset. I wanted to see the target clear as possible. And so uh, I persuaded the planning team in Tel Aviv to let us do it before sunset and take the risk of flying back 90 minutes at 40,000 feet. In daylight, we had at least two 15s around us on the way back also. So we relied on them. We also had had to our missiles, but we didn't have fuel for our uh, combat. It was so marginal for us for the F-16 because of we didn't have air fuel. So we took off from that base near Eilat, Etzion, and one minute after takeoff, we passed south of Aqaba, and believe it or not, King Hussein himself was there on a yacht, and he saw us, and he transmitted immediately among his capital that 10 Israeli fighter planes, 8 F-16s, 2 F-15s, flew south of Aqaba, heading to Saudi Arabia. You can imagine that General Ivry hearing that information from his intelligence and dilemma that he had at that moment, maybe the whole surprise, you know, is lost because we knew that uh, all the time there was communication between Amman and Baghdad. So if the Iraqis hear his message from King Hussein, maybe the whole uh, surprise effect is lost. But General Ivory, uh, the chance he thought knew that uh, this information even if it gets to uh, Baghdad, that they cannot understand that these 10 fighter planes heading to Saudi Arabia, south of Aqaba, is going to Baghdad. They didn't have a way to understand it. So we flew low altitude on the red mountains of Saudi Arabia to the yellow and white desert of Iraq, jettisoning the wind tanks and approaching the two rivers, Tigris and Euphrates, and accelerating as we approached Baghdad from 400 knots to 600 knots, pulling up to uh, 7,000 feet, we were really surprised. We turned on our radars not to see any plane over Baghdad. You know, you must remember that there was a war going on between Iran and Iraq. Yes. You know, each of us thought that his radar was malfunctioning. Was it too good to be true? And then we also saw on our rogue here, the you know, there is a special receiver that shows you if radar is locked on, you know, they had SA-6, SA-3, a lot of them around Baghdad. It's very easy to protect Baghdad because it's a flat area. It's not like Dimona, which is very close to the border. Very easy to defend Baghdad. And so we didn't see any of those radars locked on us. Not SA-6, not SA-3, not the radar of pigs. Uh, no, it was too good to be true. And we pulled up, we saw the reactor, even before pull-up, because of the big wall around it, huge wall, and you know, most of the bombs. We had, each of us carried two B-52 
big bombs, 2,000 bombs, so uh, 16 bombs. Almost all of them hit the reactor, so the reactor was destroyed, and there was defense system that missiles and the fighter planes did not react. It was so surrealistic. You can see in YouTube the video of Ilan Ramon from that flight. I saw it a few weeks ago, and you can see how he maneuvers because he is sure there is someone chasing him, although there was no one there, but it was, as I said, too good to be true. And he was number eight. He was the last one. So uh, he was looking for that. He was really surprised to find out that there was no one chasing him. So most of the bombs is the target we could see, especially along the the, the last one, number eight, to see that the target is destroyed. So we transmitted a relay, which was in the F exit of F-15, not so far from us. The target was destroyed and we had to climb to 40,000 feet because we didn't have fuel to stay in low altitude. And that was really hard part because, you know, you know that you are exposed to all the radars in the Middle East, especially yeah. the Iraqi. And we expected them to intercept us and they don't show up. Even on the way back, after we destroyed the reactor and they see us. And so clearly, it's so easy to see us and intercept us. You know, they had a base. We called it H3 in the western part of Iraq. And we were sure that they are going to take off from that base and try to intercept us on the way back, heading east. That's why there was a special formation, different formation of F-15s, led by Eitan Ben Eliyahu, who was later the commanding officer of the Air Force. At that time, he was a colonel. And we were all sure this formation of four F-15s is going to shoot down so many MiGs and Mirages. They had French Mirages and Russian MiGs. And even that did not happen. For religious people, it's very easy to say it's the hand of God. But if you're not religious, it's so strange. But that's what happened. We flew for three hours, and no one tried to intercept us. The only reaction was the anti-air artillery around the reactor. They fired. They understood that these eight planes are enemies. And they fired at us, but they did not hit. And we didn't have even the smallest technical function. You must remember that at that time, in 81, this single-engine F-16 was new and it was such a brave decision on the side of General Ivory to send us, the F-16s, to do it. And the uh, engines, the flight controls, the electrical system, the hydraulic system, everything worked perfect. And we landed back in that base, Tion near Eilat, after three hours of flight. I not believe that the whole formation was back, unlike we expected. Chief of Staff. Chief of Chair, yeah. He talked to us before we took off and he said, you know, if any of you falls into the hands of the Iraqis, you know, become prisoner of war, you have to eject and stay there in Iraqi prison for months, maybe more. Tell them everything you know. You know nothing. Just come back safe to me. It was so exciting, you know. He had lost his son a few days before him. It was during the Shiva of his son. His son was a kafir pilot. Kafir was an Israeli fighter plane at that base from which we took off at Shah. So Raful, the chief of staff, was talking to us during the Shiva of his son. And uh, it was so exciting to hear the chief of staff speaking like that, telling us, if you're in the hands, tell them everything, you know, just come back safe to me because what you know is nothing. It's not important. So we uh, refueled at that base. 
took off. It was already dark, of course, because the sun that we were chasing on the way back was already down. It was night. And we flew at nighttime back to our base in the north. And we thought we were going to sleep to take some rest. But they took us with a light plane from our base to Tel Aviv. And we had to share, of course, naturally, that flight with generals and ministers. And <laughs> I tried to do it as short as possible. You know, nothing happened. The Iraqis didn't show up. Either the missiles, not the fighter planes. And we had been told by the chief of staff, Rafael Eitan, a fool, our government is not going to announce or admit that we did it. There is a war going on between Iraq and Iran. We know that the Iranians had tried a few months beforehand to destroy the reactor. So maybe now they succeeded. But Menachem Begin, the prime minister, he did announce that we did it. That's why the U.S. stopped the supply of F-16s yeah. and announced us in the U.S. There were really hard five or six months. months. We didn't know how long it's going to last, his uh, punishment. But after a few months, the supply of 16 uh, and uh, only 10 years later, during the war in the Gulf, we heard that the American government understand that what we had done in 81 was the right thing to do. At that time, in 81, President Reagan and the whole uh, atmosphere was against us. And, yes. They were really furious at us. Well, what did you do? It's going to cause a war. So, you know, the anticlimax after such a thing is not easy. I was decorated by the chief of staff. Nachem Begin and his government came to my squadron and thanked us. And, you know, it was really amazing. And later on, I was the commanding officer of the Air Force and I retired. But I would like to emphasize that it's not so easy to cope with the anticlimax of such a flight and live with it. I always compare it to uh, that American swimmer, sportsman, who got seven or eight gold medals in the Olympics. Oh, Michael Phelps? Phelps and uh, also... Oh, Mark Spitz. Mark Spitz. Mark Spitz, I keep thinking about him. You know, uh, he was a dentist. It's quite an anticlimax to swim and get seven or eight gold medals and then be a dentist all your life. And Mike, as for Phelps, it was a real crisis. As we all know, it was really hard for him to live with this anticlimax. Also, recall a story about uh, one of the American astronauts who came back from the moon. And, you know, after those uh, days and weeks of uh, rest, and he takes his oh. car and he drives to his office, Florida, NASA, and he stops at a red light and thinks, what do I have to do with the red light? I came back from the moon. So it's a kind of anticlimax. It's not easy to live. That's what I would like to mention. Any questions? First thing, thank you very much for sharing. I do have a couple of questions, if that's okay. The first of one, course. some people will say that it was a really crazy idea, you know, to travel from Israel to Iraq with no refueling. When you were thinking about it and you knew that it's a slight chance of success, What went through your head? Well, you know, if you're a leader, you don't think about anything but the navigation and, you know, find the target. If you are uh, not a leader, if you're number two or number five, etc., etc., then you have time to think about your family and your children, about your life. It's a totally different situation. It doesn't matter who you are. 
If you are the leader, the only thing that bothers you is the navigation, find the target, and you don't think about anything else. That's why when I heard the other pilots talking about what they thought on the way to the target on the way back, I was a little bit surprised because the only thing I had in mind was, you know, the navigation and the mission, and, you know, the drop tanks, the fuel, etc., etc. And I remember even during Yom Kippur War, when I was a leader, I didn't think about anything else. And there was only one flight when I was not a leader. I was a co-leader, number three, you know, the four pilots. Number three is the co-leader. Then I had time to be afraid to think about many things. When you're the leader, the only thing you think about is the mission. Amazing. I'm sure that there are a lot of things that are going on in a flight like that. What was a moment that you felt relieved? And what was a moment that you were worried more or the most? Well, jettisoning the drop tanks, the wing tanks, half an hour after takeoff was really, really frightening because we knew it was forbidden, it was dangerous. We were not supposed to do it with a bomb so close to the drop tanks. It's a small plane. That's why it was forbidden. And that was really frightening. Half an hour after takeoff, I think it was still in Saudi Arabia, I'm not sure. Maybe already in Iraq, but very far from the target. Now it's a very long distance from Baghdad. And on the way back, with almost no fuel, and hanging at 40,000 like sitting ducks, it was, uh, it was a long time. And we knew that we had to rely on the F-15s. They had much more fuel because they did not carry bombs. It sounds strange, but the one minute of a bug that was not the most dangerous moment. I would like to mention also another thing. This is not the flight I'm most proud of. There is another flight in my career that I'm more proud of. That was in Yom Kippur War, October 73. They uh, sent me to intercept an enemy fighter plane over the Suez Canal. And you must remember that at that time, there were Libyan mirages They came to help the Egyptians. The Egyptians. And were our mirages. So it was, they looked exactly the same. Because it's a mirage. You know, a mirage is a mirage. It's a delta plane. It looks exactly the same. So we had painted them with huge yellow triangles yellow. on the wings and on the tail. So that you can tell if it's an Israeli plane or not. Because the small stars of David, you cannot see. So... I intercepted that enemy fighter plane near the Suez Canal and uh, the, my navigator locked the radar and, you know, I intercepted him and I started to hear the sound of the heat-seeking sensor of the missile. It was M9D, side window. And I saw him, but of course I could not tell if it's Israeli Mirage or a Libyan Mirage. So I did not fire the missile. Although... I was supposed to, you know, my backseater, my navigator asked me again in the game, why don't you fire the missile? And, you know, the radar was locked and it was exactly what we were supposed to do and the controls, everything looked fine. But I had a feeling something fishy. Why is he alone? Why does he not, why doesn't he fly at low altitude? Why doesn't he fly fast? This is the way you fly in enemy territory. It was the outside of the Suez Canal, the eastern side. So I approached him, approached him, approached him, and did not fire the missile. And then something like 500, 400 meters, when with the gun sight on him and almost firing the gun, he saw me. I still 
Almost 50 years later, I don't know who he was. He saw me and he broke. And I could see the huge yellow triangles on his wings. And wow. so I, I, that moment I knew that it was ours. I'm really proud of this because, you know, it's, it's so hard to avoid shooting the missile when everything looks, you're supposed to do it. You get the permission of the GCI, the control, of the backseater and the radar, the missile, the sound of the missile, everything looks fine. But still, you know, I had the feeling something is wrong here. I think I did not find the missile because two days earlier, over Mount Hermon in the other side of our country, Mount Hermon, north with Syria, I shot down my first MiG. It was a Syrian MiG-21. And I'm afraid that if I had not shot down that Syrian MiG two days earlier, maybe I would have shot. You would have uh, taken down the Mirage. So I'm really proud and I'm much more proud of this than the flight to uh, Baghdad. That you saved another pilot's life. Yes. I still don't know who he was because communication, he was on another channel, it was total war, such a mess. And, uh, but I know it. Uh, this was my greatest moment, holding the fire. And that is an amazing line to end our uh, conversation with. Um, thank you, Kobe. Zevik Raz, thank you very much for enlightening us. And it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Uh, a real honor to speak to you. I'm here. Thank you. Take care, Kobe. Bye-bye. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and wanted to thank you for joining me. If you like my podcast, feel free to rank it and share it with others. I also invite you to subscribe to my podcast so you will get updates when a new episode is on the air. And last but not least, I invite you to check my website, Balagan, www.balagan.ltd, for more content about Israel's history and politics. Bye for now, and have a great day.